we are going to talk this morning about dispensationalism. And next week, we're going to talk about covenantal theology. And I need to just give a few comments along, along the way here, because on, on one level, I do not really enjoy working through th- this too much, because in, for, for many of us, this stuff is talked about all the time, and perhaps um, we have, I don't know, gotten bored with it, or it's become frustrating because these these conversations and discussions have gone on so long that clear lines are drawn, and it's really hard to talk about it in a way that's not talking to people who have already made up their minds, and or to just try to convince people to to change their opinion and adopt a different one. And so, in one way, this is not very enjoyable because it's it's just marching. It's like the Calvinism Arminianism debate. It's just Ah, I'm tired. I'm tired of of dealing with that. But the reality is that dispensationalism and covenantal theology are just two different whole Bible theologies. In their biblical theologies, the way it's talked about, it, it's almost presumed that these are the only two biblical theologies out there. When actually there are a bunch of biblical theologies and ways of understanding the whole message and structure of the Bible. And it's not just dispensationalism or covenantal theology that does this. Um, there, there are different ways of trying to understand the story of Scripture, and dispensationalism happens to be one of them. It, it tells a particular story, and we've got to talk about it is, is part of our discussion. And next week we'll talk about what covenantal theology is. I want to be careful not to just dump on either of of these approaches. I'm going to suggest a different way forward, a a way of reading the Bible or biblical theology that's called progressive covenantalism that stands in distinction from these. But even there, I, I have worked through that system a lot, and there are some questions that I have about that. And I think what we will come to find is that a good whole Bible theology is somewhat elusive. It's hard to put the Bible into an interpretive system and and suggest that there are no abnormalities to that system or there's nothing that disprove you know that proves a rule by by being different. And so we just have to work through these things. The the other thing I want to say is that if at the end of this lesson, if you're inclined towards dispensationalism and, and you think Aaron's critiques of this were just not that good. Um, that's okay. You can you can be a, a happy dispensationalist here. If you're a covenantal theologian, can convince that way. And next week you think the same thing. That's fine too. I think what I have to offer here in in the third week is going to be a helpful way forward. But it will definitely be easier for someone who's operated in a dispensational world to accept it than someone who's operated in a, a covenantal theology world to accept it. Um, so those those are just some prefacing comments along the way. Um, but we, we really do have to think about these things and deal with them. Dispensationalism is a whole Bible biblical theology. And it, it both is... a conclusion about the whole story, but also the way that people are helped in interpreting the smaller parts of the story in in individual texts. And anytime we put forward a whole Bible biblical theology, we need to realize that we can't just stop there. We have to keep reading both ways. So what I'm trying to say is once we get our big picture solidified, 
that big picture is constantly being tweaked as we look at the smaller pieces, even as we put those smaller pieces and understand their meaning in light of the big picture. And so as we read the Bible, we can't just say, I have my, my idea of what the you know, big idea is, and therefore I'm going to make all the small parts fit into that. Um, nor should we try to just take all the small parts by themselves. They do fit into a larger narrative, a larger message of the Bible. So what that means is your reading of the Bible is going to, we could call it, you know, dialogical. It's in dialogue with each other, the big and the small. We keep working back and forth. But this is, isn't this how we read every story? Isn't this how we figure out everything in our lives? We, we look at the data in front of us and we try to make sense of the bigger picture because of it, but then we let the bigger picture shape our understanding of the smaller thing along the way. And, and that's what we have to do with the Bible too. And I think that's one of the beauties of it is it, it sort of it does not allow us to totally um, become its master. It, it keeps being our master. It keeps surprising us and it keeps guiding us and we have to keep working through that. Um, a final note before we start is that wherever you would land, there's sort of a spectrum of discontinuity to continuity in these systems as you look at the Old and the New Testament. Whether you land on, on that dispensational side of the, the spectrum or on the covenantal side of the spectrum, we, we need to be careful that we don't overplay the differences either. I think that's one of one of the errors of adopting a system is you can start to, to overplay the differences between the system you're working in and you know the alternative systems in such a way that you could start to accuse the covenantal in perspective of being a different gospel or, or the dispensational perspective of being a different gospel. And I think eventually, uh, the further you go on either side of the spectrum, that could be true. Um, but probably not as much as we would want to, to play it out to be. Um, there, there might be some differences in, in the telling of the story, but it's, I think it's the same story. So by analogy, there, there are ways of looking at the Bible. Um, I've read this book by a guy named Jack Miles. I think it's just called God, where he tells a story of the Bible that is not at all the same story of the Bible that that a dispensationalist or a progressive covenantalist or a covenantalist would write. And we need to be able to recognize those things. So by analogy, if you've um, read Wizard of Oz, there's like a, a you know, play off of that, Wicked, or, or a book off of that, that's what it's called, Wicked, where it tells the story from the, the green witch's perspective, Alphaba, in this other play. Well, that's a whole different story. It's, it's no longer Wizard of the Oz, it's a different story. And there are readings and interpretations of the Bible that are now a different story. And even though it's labeled as Christian, we, we reject that. But the differences between dispensationalism and covenantal theology are not totally different stories. Um, they're operating within the same one. Does this all make, make sense on where we're trying to go? Okay. Um, let's, let's move forward here. That chart will perhaps be helpful. As we look at dispensationalism, there are essentially three iterations of dispensationalism, and they, they cannot, they're all in existence still. So when we talk about an iteration or, or a development of dispensationalism, that doesn't mean that there are no individuals who would hold to a classic dispensationalism view anymore. There are only progressive dispensationals. There, there are individuals 
in our day who hold to all of these. Um, but they, they all fall in this larger category of dispensationalism. So there's classic dispensationalism. We'll talk about that first. And then it, revised dispensationalism is also known as traditional dispensationalism. I'm going to call it revised all the way through because I think that helps us understand the, the difference. I was always confused by that when people talk about the traditional dispensational perspective and then they talk about the classic dispensational perspective and I'm like, that's the same, like the terminology is not helping me out here. So we're going to stick with revised. And then finally, we'll look at progressive dispensationalism. And progressive does not mean like um, we're becoming wacko or something like that. It's just like, um, the, it, it relates to progressive revelation, like that happens over time. It doesn't refer to becoming less of a dispensationalist or something like that. It's, it's just noting the progression of dispensations. In, in the same way that when I talk about progressive covenantalism in a couple weeks, that's talking about the progression of the covenants. It's not saying we're left Linging covenantalists or something like that. D does that all make sense? Okay. Um, at this point, we have 15 minutes to to talk about all of. No, that's the old time. We have plenty of time. I was about to get. I was like, what did I just talk about for 30 minutes? How did this just happen? But we're we're on a different schedule, so we're we're good. Okay. Let's uh, dispensationalism was actually first introduced um, at least you know, as we look at history in England in the, the Brethren movement. And so sometimes you might think to be Baptist is to be a dispensationalist, and that's not true. These, these are separate things that often have some overlapping categories. And in fact, there are some Presbyterians who are dispensationalists as well. So as we look at this, you can't, you shouldn't think, well, I grew up a Baptist and our church was a dispensationalist. So to be Baptist is to be dispensationalist. That's just not the case at all. Um, it began in the Brethren movement, um, and, and it became popular in North America through this guy, D.L. Moody, through the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, there's a revised edition of the Schofield Reference Bible that correlates to revised dispensationalism instead of classic dispensationalism. Um, so like my, my grandma, for uh, she, she was losing her memory, but for multiple years in a row, she got me the same Bible, the same Schofield Reference Bible. And that, that's what made dispensationalism popular in the U.S. more than anything is this easy-to-read, really well-produced study Bible. And in, in fact, I still have it, and it's a great resource. But that made it real dispensationalism po popular. And then this guy, Louis Sperry Schaefer, Schaefer's Systematic Theology. It's nine volumes. If you would like to look at it sometime, I have like a original edition of that in my library from my grandfather, who I think was studying at Detroit Theolog or Dallas Theological Seminary. And if you want to know what dispensationalism is, just Google Dallas Theological Seminary Statement of Faith or Doctrinal Statement. And, and that's their, one of their distinctives is that that's kind of their grounding. And so if you want to hear dispensationalism from dispensationalists, look at that. That's, that's kind of a gold standard summary. Um, this guy, Craig Blazing, who would identify as a progressive dispensationalist, kind of identifies those three forms that, that you saw on the chart. Um, and then for, for those of you coming from Eden, 
Um, if you were there when John Pratt taught some of these things, he would fall into that progressive dispensational category. Uh, Bruce Ware, who is a, a speaker there, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, he, he would advocate for that as well. So this is a, a view, especially the progressive view that we'll see at the end, is probably more popular or in vogue right now among dispensationalists. Um, but we need to uh, think about this term dispensationalist. What, dispensations, wh where does that come from? Well, there's, there's actually a Greek word that could be translated dispensations. In none of our translations will you find that word. But sometimes dispensationalists are attacked as if, you know, you invented this thing altogether and, uh, in the 19th century and there's just nothing here for it. Well, there, there is a word, um, oikonomia. It's, it's sort of this uh, management of God's household. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and essentially it's just saying that there has been a management of different eras in redemptive history. And, and different things happen in those areas out, that's, that's an outworking of God's redemptive plan. Virtually every Christian theologian would say, would believe in some form of dispensations. They wouldn't call them that, but as we look at progressive covenantalism, we look at the different covenants as progressions in the outworking of God's redemptive plan. So the idea of these different stages of God's plan is not unique to dispensationalists. What is unique is where they ground that and then how these different dispensations relate. Um, so as we get into these, there, there are really seven of them that are identified. And um, if you look at all of them, they kind of line up to the biblical covenants in a way, for the most part. Um, that's not totally true, but, but it, it's just identifying the fact that God has worked in different ways in his redemptive plan through the ages. I, in your notes, I gave you a, a very lengthy block quote explaining what dispensationalism is in, in essence. And I'm not going to take the time to read that here, but if you want a good summary of that, this guy, these guys, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam from Southern Seminary, I think do a really good job of just summarizing what the main claims of dispensationalists are. Um, and if you want to look at that in a book, it's footnoted for you. You can grab it and, and read it in, in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant. If you want even more resources on that, if you want a more brief evaluation of, of everything that you saw in that chart, you should grab this book from Discontinuity to Continuity. And it's very simple, very helpful, very easy. Um, I, I think this would be your go-to if you're wanting to explore these different categories more. Okay. Any comments or questions before we look at the different iterations of dispensationalism? Okay, if you have some along the way, pause and ask. Uh, this, this is in some ways too complicated to talk about in a, in a lesson because they, there's a lot going on there and um, we're leaving more left unsaid than, than we're saying. Uh, but hopefully this will be helpful. Classic dispensationalism um, maintained a dualistic conception of redemption. Um, and, and really, there's an accusation made that there are two plans of salvation according to um, classic dispensationalists. And I think that accusation holds. I think that's true. In their view, 
God has an earthly intent to redeem creation from its curse and to grant immortality to an earthly humanity that will live on earth forever, first appearing in the millennial age, where those who are living on the earth at the Lord's return will receive immortality, and as a result, they don't experience death or final resurrection. But then God also has a heavenly purpose centered on a heavenly humanity consisting of people from every dispensation who have died before Christ's return. And at the final resurrection, they'll experience that heavenly inheritance. So, so there's sort of a division between the people of God on earth and that, that redemptive plan, and, and that would be Israel, and then a redemptive plan for the heavenly people of God, which would be the church. And so it's, it's as if there are two separate plans of redemption, two different ends there. Um, they, these dispensationalists will look at the different dispensations, these time periods, as arrangements where humanity is tested in their obedience to the Lord. And, and over and over again, they fail. So in these arrangements, there are seven innocence, you know, in Eden, conscience, the time from fall to flood, human government from Noah to Babel, um, promise from Abraham to Egypt, law from Moses to John the Baptist, grace, this church age, and, and then kingdom, this millennium. And when I was in college, at, at a dispensational college, we memorized all of these with hand motions and everything. I won't take the time to teach those to you. But virtually, um, these, these seven epics or ages are viewed as tests of human obedience or, or compliance to, to the divine commands. Um, and within them, these dispensationalists do recognize biblical covenants. So they, they will recognize the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. These covenants fall in these time periods. Um, but it, they, you can log this away. They don't affirm a covenant at creation. And, and that'll become important as we think about that next week and in the following week. Really, the first covenant that they care about is the Abrahamic covenant. So even the Noahic covenant is, is somewhat of an abnormality. It doesn't quite fit the system very well. Um, and it's uh, like this almost a, a temporary thing and for dispensationalists, an ironic thing, where God promises not to destroy the earth by flood anymore, but he will by fire. Well, if you were with us in our, in our class, worship class, the conclusion we'll have is that that's apocalyptic language for the destruction of the earth. That's really transformation. And it, God isn't being cute and clever by saying, I won't destroy the earth again, dot, 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 with a flood, but I will with fire. That, that's not what's going on. But it doesn't fit the dispensationalist uh, story of the Bible well. So the Noahic covenant is, you know, generally marginalized as you look at these things. Um, so so th as you move forward, the Noahic covenant doesn't come into play. Instead, it's the Abrahamic covenant that's the foundation for the redemptive plan of God. And uh, it especially focuses uh, for Israel on the land promises in that covenant, though there's a spiritual and heavenly connection of the church to this covenant. And so what you need to recognize right away is that while while dispensationalists advocate for a very literal reading of the Bible, they do have a category for a spiritual application of covenants to the heavenly people of God, the church. And, and that right away is going to be one of our critiques of dispensationalism. Um, they, they will push against covenantalists or others who, who would have allegorical or spiritual readings, uh, but they themselves have a spiritual reading of the Abrahamic covenant. 
So where they would critique covenantalists for equating circumcision and baptism in, in the spiritual way, uh, they do something analogous to it and having this spiritual sense of the covenants being applied to the church. Fundamental to their application is this understanding of the, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of heaven is understood as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and, and that relates to Israel, and the kingdom of God is just God's moral rule over the hearts of his people. So they would say Israel rejected the kingdom of heaven with Christ, and so God established the church comprised of Jew and Gentile as a parenthesis in the redemptive plan, and eventually that's going to go away as the kingdom comes in the millennium and the earthly people of God will experience that, Israel. Um, so let me read this paragraph in summary. Classical dispensationalism emphasized the radical dualism between Israel, God's earthly people, and the church, God's spiritual people. This distinction consisted of two separate redemptive programs, one related to earth, Jews, and the other related to heaven, the church. They claim this dualism appears in the New Testament's descriptions of the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. They also maintain the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 applies only to Israel, not the church. Furthermore, in the future, when God consummates his redemptive plan, the two people will remain separate. So you'll notice that in that concluding line, classic dispensationalists would say the church is not part of the new covenant. Uh, the new covenant referenced in the prophets is not what we are part of. And so you might ask, well, what about the author of Hebrews where they talk about the new covenant? Well, the solution to that is to say, it's talking about a different mysterious new covenant. Um, it's, it's a different one than what the Old Testament talked about. And I, I don't think that's satisfactory at all. And in fact, every future iteration of dispensationalism says that's not satisfactory at all. And so you can still be a dispensationalist and say, that's not right. The church is part of the new covenant. The question will be understanding in, in which way is the church part of the new covenant. Um, one of the challenges to this view, as I mentioned, is that uneven literal hermeneutic. Um, this inconsistent application where, where there's a spiritual interpretation of the, of the promises for the church sort of shows that the foundational commitment of dispensationalism in, in their hermeneutic is not carried out. So they might claim we read the Bible literally and, and they don't. And that's okay because you shouldn't read it in this wooden literalistic sort of way. Um, but even as that claim is made, it, it's not true. So the, the reason I'm pointing this out is if you talk to dispensationalists, they'll talk about the things that are like the, this is what makes me a dispensationalist. And they'll say, we read the Bible with a literary, historical, grammatical approach. They're not the only ones who say that. We say that and do that. You'll see that in the sermon today. That's not what makes a dispensationalist a dispensationalist. What does, however, is the stark distinction between Israel and the church, and that's what we'll see throughout. Comments or questions on, um, on classic dispensationalists? All right, th this is a foundation to it. Everything else is uh, found in orientation to the this. So it's distinct from it or it's the same in relationship to classic dispensationalism. We get to revised dispensationalists 
And these dispensationalists realized we cannot separate the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. That doesn't work. We can't exclude the church from the new covenant and and act as if there's a different new covenant that's being referenced. That doesn't work. And so they move along the line towards continuity between Israel and, and the church, but they maintain a distinction between Israel and the church. However, they want to be clear that there's only one redemptive plan of God. And, and that, I think, is a step in the right direction. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to spend too much time on, th- on this view, but essentially what's maintained is that the application of the promises to the church is generally spiritual in nature only, where Israel awaits future physical, literal um, fulfillment of promises. So the church is grafted in, they're partners in the new covenant, but only in a spiritual sense. Israel is, a, is the one who will receive all of the promises in a literal sense. And I, th- I think dispensationalists maintain during the millennial kingdom and into the final state. Um, so as you look at this, that, that key distinction of dispensationalists, separation of Israel and the church is still at play. So they would say that Christ is currently enthroned in heaven. He's ruling, but he's not ruling as a Davidic king. That won't happen until the millennial kingdom. And so they, there's still a distinction between God's kingdom, you know, in a sense, between God's rule and then Christ's Davidic rule. So instead of dividing between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, there's a division between Christ's rulership reigning as the exalted Messiah, and then in a priestly sense, and then reigning as the exalted Messiah in a kingly sense in in the future millennium. So even though they've said we don't separate kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, they now make a different separation um, that that I don't think is helpful. Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out the best way to summarize and move forward here because we want to get to to progressive dispensationalists. there, there are some assumptions here that are true of earlier dispensationalists but that come to the fore here. On page 9, the, the fundamental assumption for, classic, or for tr- revised dispensationalists is that no prophecy is fulfilled completely until it's been fulfilled literally. So they will look at different promises and say it's, it's been fulfilled spiritually with the church, but the prophecy isn't done with. It hasn't met its fulfillment yet until it's been met in a literal way. Uh, so um, where I, I will advocate in, in a sense that all of the promises have been fulfilled in, in Christ in this already not yet kingdom and in that the, um, the borders of Israel will be expanded to include the whole world. That, that's what I'm going to say. Um, the, the dispensationalists will say, well, that might happen in, in the final state, perhaps, maybe, doubtfully, but maybe, but the promises aren't fulfilled until the borders of Israel are filled by national Israel under the Davidic King Jesus. And so, so that changes the way you read the rest of the, the end of the Bible to say, well, there must be a millennial kingdom in which ethnic Israel is in, you know, the, the borders of the promised land under the rule of King Jesus. And the, the underlying assumption is that no prophecy is fulfilled unless it's literally fulfilled in exactly the way that it was prophesied. Now, this, this is what we call begging the question in, in um, logical fallacy terms. It's, it's circular reasoning. So the argument goes, no prophecy is fulfilled, finally, until it's literally fulfilled. And we know this because every prophecy that's been fulfilled has been literally fulfilled. And, and the ones that aren't fulfilled are not, are not fulfilled. 
so, so you see how it's sort of a, a circling around to say um, they must be fulfilled literally because they are fulfilled literally. And, and that's, that is, it's not always wrong to have circular reasoning. We eventually, every, everything eventually, I think, comes to circular reasoning. You know, why, why do you believe the Bible's authoritative? Well, it says so. Well, well, that's circular reasoning too. So, so with this charge of circular reasoning, I'm not saying that dispensationalists are, are foolish or logically fallacious or something like that because we, circular reasoning is, is actually part of life. However, it's one that's not accounted for very well, in, in my opinion. The, the other critique that I would give here is that revised dispensationalists have a flat reading of Scripture that's inflexible, that applies an overly literistic interpretation of the Bible, and, and is not open to surprise. And so there's a reading of, of the Bible that says everything must be fulfilled in a woodenly literal way or else it's not fulfilled at all. So, so Israel must be in the land. You can't say that God is going to fulfill that promise with something greater than they would have ever expected, the world. It, it must be the land. And, and I think that that's problematic because over and over again, you see God surprising his people with fulfilling his word in greater and in more delightful ways, you know, in, as Paul would say in Ephesians, beyond what we could ask or think, God, God meets our requests. And if God meets our requests in that way, I think he also meets his promises in that way. And, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. Finally, progressive dispensation. Oh, let me pause there. Any questions on revised dispensationalism? Yeah, this is sort of complicated. You could take like a, a whole year and just work through this stuff. But um, as, as I said before, quoting my professor, these generalizations are almost always wrong, but almost always helpful. So there, there are exceptions to what I'm saying, and it's not everything to say, but it at least kind of frames things. So moving on to progressive dispensationalism. So I mentioned this is the most popular form of dispensationalism right now. Um, I think some of the challenges faced by earlier dispensationalists have been recognized, and, and there's a movement towards saying, we, we actually have to deal with this. We, we can't, um, you know, just pretend these objections are invalid. So where classic and revised dispensationalism emphasizes the church as a parenthesis to the story, almost like, a, well, Israel rejected Jesus, but something needed to happen, so, so church is there for a time, and then it's over. Um, the progressive dispensationalists talk about the church is, is much more part of the uh, uh, redemptive plan of God. It's not an accident. It's not a surprise. It's organically related to the work that Jesus did. And in fact, it was through the rejection of Israel that permitted and fulfilled the eternal plan of God to include Gentiles into his people. Um, however, there's still that stark distinction between Israel and, and the church. There's still a, a separation or bifurcation between the two, and the church still represents the spiritual blessings of God's people that, that they'll all share in the eternal state. Um, however, there's still a future for ethnic Israel in, in entering into the land uh, according to the promise. Furthermore, the foundation of progressive dispensationalism is still the Abrahamic covenant. And, and our cr my critique of that is going to be it doesn't go back far enough. You, you cut out a good chunk of the redemptive story if you start with Abraham and not with what went before it. So some of these things that I think are fundamentally misguided are, are still there that, that need to be dealt with. 
while progressive dispensationalists, many of them at least, will affirm seven dispensations still, uh, most of them that I've talked to do not. They talk more in terms of four dispensations, starting with the patriarchal dispensation and ending with Zionic, this kind of future New Jerusalem. But even in what they've narrowed down to the core dispensations, you'll see that it starts with the patriarchs, the first of which is Abraham. Once again, there's an emphasis on redemptive history being grounded in, in Abraham. Um, progressive dispensationalists, however, move the needle towards continuity um, between Israel and the church. There's more similarities there. There's more connection there than previously thought. Um, and, and it does recognize the new man of Ephesians 2.15 that we've talked about. Out of Jew and Gentile becomes one new man. Now, we'll, I'll mention in a moment, but they divide the new man down the road, okay, in, in the millennial kingdom final state. But... Um, Essentially, there, there's more continuity. Jews and Gentiles become one spiritual people. Um, but there, there are still these distinctions that are fundamental to dispensationalists. Now, this I, I think I was, for several years, very attracted to progressive dispensationalism because it made more sense of the New Testament um, in, in these ways. We talk about, or progressive dispensationalists talk about an already not yet kingdom where Jesus came, he came as the, the Messiah, the priest king, and he inaugurated the kingdom or he started the kingdom. So the kingdom is present in a sense, just not in its fullness. And I heard that and thought, this makes a lot of sense. That the kingdom is here, that fits with what Jesus is saying, it fits with the way the apostles talk about it. And, and Jews and Gentiles are one spiritual people now. And then when the kingdom is here in its fullness, um, we'll all participate in the fullness of the kingdom. But the problem is that progressive dispensationalists don't believe that last part. So I look at it as a bit of a bait and a switch for someone who's not paying close attention. It sounds like they're saying Jews and Gentiles are one new man now in the already of the kingdom. And in the, in, in the not yet when it comes, we'll still be together and join the fullness of the kingdom. But, but instead, there's still that spiritual application. So, so in a millennial kingdom or, or beyond, there's this idea that when Jesus' kingdom comes fully, Gentiles participate in the spiritual elements of that kingdom, but not the physical elements of that kingdom. Primarily the land promise is, is what's in view here. Um, so, so that, I think, is one of the biggest critiques that I would have of progressive dispensationalism. So I think there's a, a, still an inconsistent literal hermeneutic Though, though they've expanded to include some typology and some, some other ideas in the already of the kingdom, they revert back to, I think, an overly literalistic interpretation method when they talk about the not yet of the kingdom that is to come. Does that make sense? Of, so so we're, it's an already, everyone enjoys in it equally in the already, but, but that's, that won't be the case in the not yet. Tim. Yeah, so I think it probably varies a little bit on who you would talk to, but I think the most common view would be, according to progressive dispensationalism, that there there's a a, a rapture, right, prior to the tribulation, uh, this pre-tribulational rapture, it, where the church is 
exported from earth up to heaven, and then massive conversion of Israel, and they enter into the millennial kingdom and live forever, and they have the promised land, you know, that sort of idea. Does that, does that make sense? I think there's a return, but not as Israel, as according to their ethnic nationalities spread across the globe. But Israel has has learned. There's there's some complication there, and even as for a while I was a, a dispensationalist seminary, I would ask, well, what about after the millennial kingdom? If you're tracking with that form of eschatology, what happens? New heaven, new earth, and there it was very vague and no no answers that provided clarity for me there. And even as I was Looking back at, at the dispensational books, it, it yeah, yeah. There's some question of what what does this mean or look like post millennium, and so the Israel Church distinction becomes muted, perhaps after the end of the millennium, according to that eschatology. Um, so there's just probably not much written about it that would provide clarity for your question, but I think that's a that's one of the questions that. I think is worth asking. Um, and if you're a committed dispensationalist in a church with people who are not, you should be able then to say, this distinction might last for a thousand years in my view. And then after that, we're, we're maybe not making the same distinction. So again, that's where the views are different, covenantal theology and dispensationalism, but we shouldn't overplay them. Because if we look at eternity, future, that, that distinction that we're making might not be there. It's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to leave that for, for another discussion. But, but there, there are other distinctions along the way. There are questions. But in the end, I, I want to uh, give a final comment here. Dispensationalism has been revised, and, and I think any system whose proponents are willing to revise their view as objections are made, we, we should say that's a good thing, and we should strive to be those kind of people that revisit our conclusions when objections are made and study and, and try to put things in, in line with what makes the best sense of the scriptures. However, my major critique of dispensationalism is that like covenantalism, they emphasize the Abrahamic covenant as, as foundational to the redemptive plan. Now, covenantalists, will, as we'll see next week, expand beyond that to an eternity, uh, covenant in eternity past. But that in, in terms of earthly existence, the Abrahamic covenant is still identified as foundational. I suggest that that doesn't go back far enough in the redemptive story. Second, um, the dispensationalists demand a literal fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant for national Israel in the millennium. And I don't think that that can be sustained as, as we look at uh, the New Testament writings and the way the New Testament authors treat the Old Testament texts. Finally, I think that like covenantal theology, both apply a spiritual interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant or application to it in a way that, that is remarkably similar but leads in opposite directions. And, and I think that we have to be cautious about that. And I think as we look at the, the way the covenants fit together, we, we don't have to do that. We don't have to go towards this spiritual application piece for the church 
any more than we have to talk about uh, the, the way that covenantalists would in terms of circumcision, baptism, application. We're out of time here. I am happy to talk about these things, but I want to reemphasize again. Keep come, come to the next classes. See where we're going with this. And if you don't ultimately agree with me in the end, that's okay. Um, I'm not sure that Josh and Steve and I all would articulate these things in the exact same way either. And, and I think we can have great harmony in our interpretation of the scriptures, even where we might have some divergences along the way as we adopt different views. Let me pray for us, and um, then next week we'll stumble through covenantal theology as well. Father, thank you for um, the way that you bring people together even people who perhaps would look at some of these things differently. We, we trust that you reveal what we need for life and godliness. There's mystery there that we pursue and that we may not know. Um, and, and we pray that you would give us humility to be able to say that and to be able to realize that our, our reading of the story may be off at points. And we long for the day when Christ returns, where, where we will see the fullness of your presence with your people forevermore. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.